and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it is my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today we are going back into the book of Luke. We are continuing our study of the life of Jesus according to the book of Luke. We are on Luke chapter 12 today, which means if there's 24 chapters in the book of Luke, we're halfway through. We are halfway through his telling of Jesus's life. And what a time it has been. It has been illuminating, confronting, convicting. I feel like some parts of me are reading his life for the first time, and I know that's not the case. I love studying Jesus's life, but I don't know if it's just the season that I'm in, but I literally feel like it's the first time I've ever studied his life for some reason. So certain aspects, the way things are hitting me, um, it feels different. It feels new. So I'm excited. I took a couple of days away from it just because I was literally having some emotional moments and deep and heavy reflection after each chapter that we've gone through so far. And honestly, like I, I mean, weekends are busy in and of themselves, but I just didn't have what I needed to dive into his words because I'm taking it so seriously. I just, I couldn't actually go there over the weekend. Um, So I really appreciate the opportunity to take a little pause and do a couple of episodes. And I'm sure I'm going to have to do that every now and then as we're working through the rest of this, because, you know, unless it starts hitting me differently, um, I'm probably not going to be able to just record 12 more episodes or however I do this um, straight through. I'm sure I'm going to have to kind of break it up and break it up. But I hope you're getting something out of this, and yeah, I'm ready to dive in. So let's go. Let's read together Luke chapter 12 today. All right, to set the scene, Jesus has left now that altercation between him and the Pharisees and the Mosaic lawyers when he, you know, that so-called beat down, (laughs) spiritually speaking, that Jesus bestowed upon these particular groups of religious elite, you might call them. Um, So we've just finished that, and he has left the Pharisees in a quite hostile mood. They are considering all sorts of plans and ways in which to get Jesus out of the scene. And now in Luke chapter 12, again, always reading from the Amplified Bible for this um, particular study, we are going to see Jesus continue to minister and speak to his disciples. So let's see what he is saying today. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, after so many thousands of the people had gathered that there were that they were stepping on one another, Jesus began speaking first of all to his disciples. Be continually on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, that is, their pervasive corrupting influence and teaching, which is hypocrisy, producing self-righteousness. But there is nothing so carefully concealed that it will not be revealed, nor so hidden that it will not be made known. For that reason, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed on the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will point out to you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority and power to hurl you into hell. Yes, I say to you, stand in great awe of God and fear him." Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? Yet not one of them has ever been forgotten in the presence of God. 
Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are far more valuable than many sparrows. I say to you, whoever declares openly and confesses me before men, speaking freely of me as his Lord, the Son of Man also will declare openly and confess him as one of his own before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied in the presence of the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but he who has blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, that is, whoever intentionally discredits the Holy Spirit by attributing the authenticating miracles done by me to Satan, it will not be forgiven him, for there is no forgiveness for this. When they bring you before the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, do not be worried about how you are to defend yourself or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over the two of you? Then he said to them, Watch out and guard yourselves against every form of greed. For not even when one has an overflowing abundance does his life consist of, nor is it derived from his possessions. Then he told them a parable, saying, There was a rich man whose land was very fertile and productive. And he began thinking to himself, What shall I do, since I have no place large enough in which to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my storehouses and build larger ones, and I will store all of my grain and my goods there. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good things stored up, enough for many years. Rest and relax, eat and drink, and be merry, celebrate continually. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own all the things you have prepared? So it is for the one who continues to store up and hoard possessions for himself, and is not rich in his relationship toward God. Jesus said to his disciples, For this reason I tell you, do not worry about your life, as to what you will eat, or about your body, as to what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, for they never sow seed nor reap the crop. They have no storehouse or barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add one hour to his lifespan? So if you not, are not even able to do a very little thing such as that, why are you worried about the rest? Consider the lilies and wildflowers, how they grow in the open field. They neither labor nor spin wool to make clothing. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory and splendor dressed himself like one of these. But if this is how God clothes the grass which is in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. So as for you, do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, nor have an anxious and unsettled mind. For all the pagan nations of the world greedily seek these things, and your heavenly Father already knows that you need them. But strive for and actively seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid and anxious, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, show compassion, and give donations to the poor. Provide money belts for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing and inexhaustible treasure in the heavens, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed and ready for active service, and keep your lamps continuously burning. Be like men who are waiting for the master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that when he comes and knocks, they may immediately open the door for him. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake and watching when he arrives. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, he will prepare, prepare himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them, whether he comes in the second watch before midnight or even in the third after midnight and finds them so prepared and ready, blessed are those servants. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have been awake and alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be continually ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us, disciples, or to everyone else as well? The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise steward of the estate, whom his master will put in charge over his household to give his servants their portion of food at the proper time? 
Blessed is that servant whom his master finds so doing when he arrives. I assure you and most solemnly say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is taking his time in coming and begins to beat the servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and and at an hour when he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and yet did not get ready or act in accord with his will will be beaten with many lashes of the whip. But the one who did not know it and did things worthy of a beating will receive only a few lashes. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. I have come to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish that it were already kindled. I have a baptism of great suffering with which to be baptized, and how greatly I am distressed until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division between believers and unbelievers. For from now on, five in one household will be divided over me. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say it is going to rain and that is how it turns out. And when you see that a south wind is blowing, you say it will be a hot day, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to analyze and intelligently interpret the appearance of the earth and sky to forecast the weather, but why do you not intelligently interpret this present time? And why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent at law to appear before a magistrate on the way, make an effort to settle, so that he does not drag you before the judge, and the judge does not rule against you, and turn you over to the officer, and the officer does not throw you into prison. I say to you, you will absolutely not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Okay, well, that was a very long chapter, rife with many, many different things, different lessons, parables, wisdom that is going to require me to use the commentary quite heavily, um, as I have with several other recent episodes on this, because um, I just, I want to I want to read it as clearly as I possibly can. And I was noticing as I was sort of preparing for this episode and I was listening to myself or I was reading it and kind of observing my own thoughts on it that I was, I don't know, feeling overly confused with some of his parables. So um, I really want to lean on the commentation that is out there already with the, uh, the Enduring Word commentator. It's been super helpful to me, very, very illuminating, and I think there's nothing quite as satisfying to me than understanding something in the Bible that feels over my head in the moment of reading it. I know that if I sat there and I just really dissected and dissected and looked up the meaning of each word and in these areas that confuse me, like I could come up with my own interpretation and, and peace about the meaning of what Jesus is saying, but... With 365 days of podcasting, you don't have that luxury to do that kind of deep word study on any area that confuses you. (laughs) So, commentation it is. So, let's take a look here. At the very beginning of this chapter, there's a very, very large group. It says an innumerable multitude had gathered. So many of them had been following Jesus that they were literally trampling one another. So that's serious, that's intense. And Jesus looked at his disciples first before ministering to the group, or the large, large masses, I guess. And he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And then he says, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be known. Whatever you speak in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you've spoken inside, you know, behind closed doors will be proclaimed on the housetops. So 
In this commentary, it says Jesus spoke this primarily to his disciples, warning them against the great danger of hypocrisy, likening it to leaven. Hypocrisy is like leaven in the sense that it only takes a little bit of it to affect a great mass. A little bit of hypocrisy can be like a little bit of arsenic. In light of their tremendous popularity, it was especially important for the disciples to remember this. The, te- the temptation to hypocrisy is often strongest towards those who enjoy some measure of outward success. Such hypocrisy, which also, such is hypocrisy, which also is leaven, as in it is spreading, it is swelling, and it sours the meal. Something that the only way to avoid being a hypocrite is to never aspire to a higher standard. But this is dangerous both for ourselves and for society. We should aspire to a high standard, yet be honest with our difficulty in fulfilling that standard. Then he goes on to say, for there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nothing hidden that will not be known. The art of being a hypocrite depends on concealment, but one day all will be revealed. We can only be hypocrites before men, but never before God. He sees through the actor's mask. In 1985, a nationally known evangelist and preacher wrote a book condemning sin in America, especially sexual sin and pornography. Just a short time later, he tearfully confessed years of involvement in these very sins and promised repentance, but was arrested for a similar crime again a few years down the road. His hypocrisy may have surprised many people, but not God. God knew all along. Then Jesus switches into this sort of little piece on not fearing persecution. And he says, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. After th- and after that, they have nothing more that they can do. But I will show you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. So it's difficult to know if Jesus said this to his disciples or to the multitude. Given the context, it is probably best to think that Jesus spoke this to his disciples, but in the plain hearing of the crowd. The connection to his previous words may be that hypocrites will always despise the faithful, so the followers of Jesus must be ready to face persecution. When Jesus spoke these things to his disciples about his martyrdom and persecution, he knew that all of them except John would also die martyrs' deaths for him. He also knew of his own coming suffering. Given the recent display of opposition to Jesus that we've just read about in the previous chapter, it is reasonable to think that the disciples felt the increasing stress and anxiety leading up to the crucifixion. They needed to gain the same peace Jesus had and put fear into perspective. When Jesus says that all they can do is kill the body, that's it, that's all they can do, All persecutors can do is kill, and God has ultimate power over the life and death of the believer. Therefore, we shouldn't fear our persecutors, but have a healthy respect for God that makes us more concerned with obeying him than any man. Clark says, a man has but one life to lose and one soul to save, and it is madness to sacrifice the salvation of the soul to the preservation of the body. He says, fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. The word translated hell is Gehenna. It is derived from the word Valley of Hinnom, which was located on the south and west sides of Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, it was a place of child sacrifice to Molech. The the reforming King Josiah stopped child sacrifice in the Valley of Hinnom, and it became a garbage dump, a stench with continually smolding fires. In the days of Jesus, it became associated with eternal fiery punishment, what is called the lake of fire in other passages. There are literally millions of people standing strong for Jesus through persecution of those who honored God more than honoring man. Following is a particular story of an Englishman named Roland Taylor. In a book first printed in 1890, John Ryle described the death of Roland Taylor, who was executed in England because he believed that priests could marry and that the bread and wine of communion did not become the actual literal body and blood of Jesus. On the last day of of January 1555, Taylor appeared with two others before the Bishop of Winchester and was charged with heresy and dividing the church. When they refused to change their minds, they were condemned to death. 
When condemned, they replied back to the bishop, We know that God, the righteous judge, will require our blood at your hands, and the proudest of all of you shall repent this receiving again all of you shall repent this receiving again of Antichrist and of all the tyranny you now show against the flock of Christ. On February 4th, Taylor was kicked out of the priesthood, and that night his wife and son were permitted to eat dinner with him. After dinner, they left with much affection and tears. The next day, he was led out to Hadley to be executed so that he would be burned to death in the city where he served as a pastor and in front of his congregation. When they left the London jail on the morning of February 5th, it was still dark. Taylor's wife suspected he might be taken that morning, so she waited with her two daughters outside the jail. When she called out to him, the sheriff allowed her to come with her daughters for one last meeting with her husband. Roland Taylor took his little daughter Mary up in his arms while Elizabeth knelt with him and said the Lord's Prayer. They hugged together, then kissed and hugged, and Taylor said to his wife, Farewell, my dear wife, be of good comfort, for I am quiet in my conscience. God shall raise up a father for my children. He kissed his daughter Mary and said, God bless you and make you his servant. And kissing Elizabeth, he said, God bless you. I pray you all stand strong and steadfast to Christ and his word. As he was led away, his wife called out, God be with you, dear Roland. I will, with God's grace, meet you at Hadley. The journey from London to Hadley took several days, and all along on the trip, Roland Taylor was joyful and merry, as if he were going to a banquet or a party. But on February 9, 1555, they came into Hadley. When they were still two miles from town, Taylor leapt off his horse and started on foot, but he was walking fast, almost as if he were dancing. The sheriff asked him how he felt, and he said, Well, God be praised, good master sheriff, never better, for now I know I am almost at home, even at my father's house. Oh, good Lord, I thank you. I shall yet once before I die see my flock, whom you, Lord, know I have most heartily loved and most truly taught. Good Lord, bless them and keep them steadfast in thy word and truth. When they came into Hadley, they put a hood over his head and came over a bridge. At the foot of the bridge was a poor man with five children who cried out, O dear father and good shepherd, Dr. Taylor, God help you, and as you have many a time helped me and my poor children. The streets were crowded on both sides with people who wanted to see him. When they saw him being led to death, they cried and wept out with all their strength. People cried out, Ah, good Lord, there goes our good shepherd from us, that so faithfully has taught us, so fatherly has cared for us, and so godly has governed us. O merciful God, what shall we poor scattered lambs do? What shall come of this most wicked world? Good Lord, strengthen him and comfort him. Taylor answered back, I have preached you God's word and truth, and am come this day to seal it with my blood. When they came to the town square, he heard a great multitude and asked where they were. When they told him they were at the place he would be executed, he said, Thank God, I am even at home. And he took the hood from his head. When the people saw his face, there was an outpouring of emotion. They wept and cried, God save you, good Dr. Taylor, Jesus Christ strengthen you, the Holy Spirit comfort you, and many other such things. Taylor wanted to speak to the people one last time, but as soon as he opened his mouth, a guard put a spear right up to his mouth and made him stop. He started giving away his clothes, first his boots, then his coat and jacket, so all he had left was his pants and shirt. He then cried out with a loud voice, Good people, I have taught you nothing but God's holy word and those lessons that I have taken out of God's blessed book, the Holy Bible, and I am come here today to seal it with my blood. But then one of the guards clubbed him over his head and said, Is that keeping your promise of silence, you heretic? So seeing he could not speak, he knelt down to pray. A poor woman came to pray, to kneel and pray beside him, and the guards tried to push her away, but she would not go. When he had prayed, he came to the stake. He would be tied to, and he kissed it, stepped into a barrel, and stood with his hands folded in prayer and his eyes toward heaven as they tied him to the stake. After some agonizing delays, they finally lit the fire, and Roland Taylor prayed out loud, Merciful Father of heaven, for Jesus Christ my Savior's sake, receive my soul into your hands. Then he stood perfectly still as the fires arose around him, without crying or moving, until a guard clubbed him on the head and his brains fell out and his dead corpse fell into the fire. A marker was left that simply said, 1555, Dr. Taylor, in defending that which was good, at this place left his blood. Well, that was a terribly sad testimony of martyrdom and persecution. No shock there, found between 
a man who was diligently seeking after Lord and the religious elite of his day that didn't like that he was doing things differently. What a shocker. But still very, very sad to see that going on. But it's happened. It's happened. It's happening now. It's happened before. It's happened to Jesus. So, um, yeah, just an interesting story that they've added here in this commentary. Then we'll see that Jesus begins to share a few examples of how valuable we are to God. He talks about how how uh, five sparrows are sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of our heads are not are are numbered. Therefore, do not uh, do not fear. You're more valuable than the sparrows. He talks about how our hair is numbered. Um, it has been said that a redhead has about 90,000 hairs, a dark-haired person has about 120,000 hairs, and a blonde has about 145,000. Yet God knows exactly how many hairs you have. If he knows that about you, he also knows all the important things. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Those who are persecuted are tempted to give in to the feeling that they are worthless and no one cares for them. Yet a loving God in heaven values each one. Matthew 10.29 tells us that one could buy two sparrows for one copper coin. Here we learn that five sparrows cost two copper coins. There was a discount for buying more from 0.5 cent copper coins to 0.4 cent copper coin per sparrow. (laughs) Just a little note there. Then we get into the portion where Jesus is talking about confessing him. If you confess him before men, he will freely confess you before the angels of God. But if you deny your relationship with God before men, um, he will deny you. And then it also says, him who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So let's take a look at this. Jesus comforted the faithful, explaining that the rewarding, the suffering Christian will be given the reward of allegiance and honor before the throne of God, the idea being that the angels of God surround his throne. Among, among early Christians, the confessors had special honor. Those were those who endured suffering for Jesus, yet were spared death. Even as there was an honorable reward for the faithful, that is, those who don't turn their back on God and proudly confess him before men, there is a terrible penalty for the faithless. They would be denied and disgraced before the throne of God. Jesus did not say, deny the person who denies me in their heart or denies me in their mind. He said, the person who denies me before men. There is a real and important place for a public declaration of allegiance to Jesus. For many, this is the most difficult thing of all, and is usually difficult because of a fear of man, the exact thing Jesus warned against in his previous words. The test to why the confessor denied Jesus before men may come in many ways, but it will always come. It is helpful to be determined in heart and mind before the test come. Comes. Jesus clearly called his listeners to a choice. As before in Luke 11, the choice is either be with Jesus or against him. Here the choice is to confess him or deny him. When he says, um, speaking a word against the Son of Man, this probably refers to a moment of weakness, especially in public testimony, which could be forgiven. In contrast, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit is in a settled rejection of God's truth, which will not be forgiven. Jesus said this when it seemed he was more popular than ever. Yet Jesus knew that being regarded as popular wasn't the same as truly being confessed and trusted. Even as he called his hearers to make a choice, he warned against making the wrong choice. The Holy Spirit's main ministry is to testify of Jesus. When that testimony of Jesus is fully and finally rejected, one has truly blasphemed the Holy Spirit and essentially called him a liar in respect to his testimony about Jesus. Those who reject Jesus in a settled sense are guilty of this sin. The eternal consequences of this sin force us to regard it seriously. How can one know if they have in fact blasphemed the Holy Spirit? The fact that one desires Jesus at all shows that they are not guilty of this sin. Yet continued rejection of Jesus makes us more hardened against him and puts us on the path of a full and final rejection of him. Some people, as a joke or a dare, intentionally say words they suppose commit the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit. They think it is a light thing to joke with eternity. 
Yet true blasphemy against the Spirit is more than a formula of words. It is a settled disposition of life that rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus. Even if someone has intentionally said such things, they can still repent and prevent a settled rejection of Jesus. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, not because it is a sin too big for God to forgive, but because it is an attitude of heart that cares nothing for God's forgiveness. It never has forgiveness because it never wants forgiveness. It may want forgiveness on its own terms, but never God's way. The way to not blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to receive Jesus Christ and to put one's loving trust upon him today. It means to stop rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to Jesus. Then he um, adds a little piece here. Jesus is speaking. Um, when they bring into the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus had warned them that men would persecute them in civic arenas like magistrates and religious arenas like synagogues. So this is the world's justice and this is church justice systems. They could expect opposition from both city hall or government, regular human government, and the halls of religion. Jesus spoke these words to men who would face this exact challenge. Thousands upon thousands since then have faced this challenge and received God's sustaining grace in it. Jesus' disciples could have perfect trust in God in such moments of great testing, knowing that the Holy Spirit would speak through them even if they were unprepared. It was not the humiliation which early Christians dreaded, not even the cruel pain and the agony, but many of them feared that their own unskillfulness in words and defense might injure rather than commend the truth. It is the promise of God that when a man is on trial for his faith, the words will come to him. So good. That's so, so cool. So, so cool. The word answer in Luke twelve eleven. Let's see. Do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. So the word answer that's being used there in Luke twelve eleven is the ancient Greek word apologamai or apology. It means to make a defense or give an adequate answer. We get the modern term apologetics from just this word and idea. Hmm. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This gave them confidence that the Holy Spirit would speak to and through them at the necessary moment, even if they were not prepared with a statement. This isn't a justification of poor preparation in teaching and preaching God's word, but it is a promise of strength and guidance for the persecuted that have an opportunity to testify of Jesus. Then Jesus turns to the... Um, turns to the crowd and someone from the crowd says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And then Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And then Jesus also said, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So Jesus had just taught on our great value to God and on the importance of standing for him. In the midst of this teaching, a man interrupts Jesus to ask that he take his side in a financial dispute. According to the law of the day, the elder brother received two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger brother received one-third. This man did not ask Jesus to listen to both sides and make a righteous judgment. He asked Jesus to take sides with him against his brother. Obviously, Jesus' previous words about the need for full commitment and God's care for us didn't penetrate this man's heart. He felt he needed to fight for what was his. If each of them learned the real meaning of life and sought as its chief endeavor to be rich toward God, the question of possessions would settle itself. The one would be eager to share while the other would be careless about receiving. And then Jesus says, well, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? It wasn't that Jesus is unconcerned about justice, but he was all too aware that this man's covetousness would do him more harm than not having his share of the inheritance. Jesus did not feel it was his responsibility to judge every matter and solve every problem. There were some disputes that he refused to become dis um, entangled in. Here is where the deceptive nature of the heart is such a challenge. We often mask our covetousness by claiming we are on a righteous crusade. Hmm. Jesus used the man's request to speak to him and to the crowd about covetousness. Perhaps the man's passionate request for justice really had a low motive. Perhaps he was more animated by covetousness than by justice. Uh, actually, beware scarcely, when Jesus says beware, it scarcely does justice to the force, which is the actual word used, which is guard yourself. 
The idea is that we are all under attack from covetousness and we must protect ourselves from it. Great possessions are generally accompanied with pride, idleness, and luxury, and these are the greatest enemies to salvation. Hmm. To divide property between covetous men is to prepare for future strife. To make men free from covetousness is to make peace. And then Jesus said, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. This is the overall principle that Jesus will develop in the following teaching on material things. When we live with the attitude that our life does does consist in what we possess, we live in covetousness. And covetousness is idolatry. Covetous men, by gaping after more, lose the pleasure of that which they possess. As a dog at his master's table swallows the whole meat he casts to him without any pleasure, gaping still for the next morsel. Then he talked about the parable of the rich fool, the man who had so many crops, but he didn't have enough room to save them all for himself, so he decided to tear down his barns and build bigger storehouses to put all of his crops and all of his goods so he can say to his soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And then right in that moment, God said, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who will those things, uh, who will take your things? Who will own what you've forgotten? And then Jesus finally wraps up that parable by saying, so is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. The man in Jesus's parable was blessed with fertile ground. We can assume that by adding hard work to the fertile ground, he was a financial success. He was so successful that he had trouble managing his resources. Hence him saying, I have no room to store all my crops. His trouble and anxiety were reflected by the words, what shall I do? When we are young, we think that to be rich means to be free from anxiety altogether. But this rich man was just as full of cares as the beggar without a sixpence in the world. With a wealth of resources, the man in the parable had his life confidently planned. He would build to better manage his wealth and then enjoy life to the fullest. But in one night, all the man's accomplishments and plans were ruined. He made business plans and life plans, but could not control the day of his death. And all his accomplishments and plans were instantly nothing. The man was a fool, not because he was rich, but because he lived without any awareness of and preparation for eternity. When it says your soul will be required of you this night, it's the language of obligation. This man owed his life, his livelihood, and his wealth to God. But most of all, he owed his soul to God, and it would be required of him. It was obligated to God every day of his life, but would be required on the day of his death. Everyone would think the man in the parable was a great success, but God said he was a fool. Eternity proved the man a fool, and his story showed that it isn't only sin to give material things to such a high place in your life, it is also stupid. Whose will those things be which you have provided? In a sense, those things did not belong to God because the man never surrendered those things to God. They did not belong to the rich fool either because he could not take those things with him. Perhaps they only belonged to the devil. Poorer than the poorest beggar, he had to leave this world. So is he who lays up treasure for himself, Jesus says. The rich man in the parable thought it was all for him. He said, my crops, my barns, my goods, my soul. Everything was about him and nothing was about God. It was proved in the end that nothing was his, even his own soul was subject to God. He didn't have any crops, any barns, any goods, and his soul was dead in the end. The man's problem was not in that he had treasure on earth, but that he was not rich toward God. We may become rich toward God by sacrificial giving to those in need and by trusting in Jesus for every necessary thing. We can't obscure the fact that earthly riches often keep us from going after heavenly riches as we should. Paul wrote, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Most of us are afraid of poverty, but we should also be afraid of wealth. John Wesley taught and lived wisely regarding riches. 
He said that you should earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. He himself lived on 28 British pounds a year and gave the rest away, even when his salary went from 30 pounds to 60 to 90 to 120 pounds over his lifetime. Then Jesus says uh, he's, he's going into that famous warning against worry. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Greed and worry are closely connected. Greed can never get enough. Worry is afraid it will never have enough. Neither have their eyes on Jesus. You can be as unfaithful to God through care as well as through covetousness. Do not worry is a loving command. We often fail to appreciate what damage worry does in our lives. Research clearly shows that stress deteriorates our immune systems. People under constant or high stress show lower T-cell counts, essential for immune response. Stress has a definite effect on fertility. Prolonged stress has been shown to affect the brain, making a person less able to respond to future stress. And stress also is related to sudden heart failure. There is a great... Excuse me, there is a difference between a godly sense of responsibility and an ungodly, untrusting worry. However, an ungodly, untrusting sense of worry usually masquerades as responsibility. The worry Jesus spoke of brings man down to the level of an animal who is merely concerned with physical needs. Your life is more, and you have eternal matters to pursue. Then he gives the example of the ravens who neither sow nor reap, and yet God feeds them. And he talks about um, the, the flowers, the lilies of the field, how well that they are arrayed. Um, so it says God provides for the birds and he takes care of them. Therefore, we should expect that God would take care of us in the same way. Yet take careful note, the birds don't worry, but they do work. Birds don't just sit with open mouths expecting God to fill them. The worry many people have over the material things of life is rooted in a low understanding of their value before God. They don't comprehend how much he loves and cares for them. Worry accomplishes nothing. We can add absolutely nothing to our lives by worrying. There may be greater sins than worry, but there are none more self-defeating and useless. God even takes care of the grass, so he will also certainly take care of you. We are confident of the power and care of a loving Heavenly Father. God cares for the flowers, but that means that every day for the flowers is not sun and sweetness. If every day was sunny and there were never clouds and rain, the flowers would die quickly. Then he says, Oh, you of little faith. Little faith is not a little fault. For it greatly wrongs the Lord and sadly grieves the fretful mind. To think the Lord who clothes the lilies will leave his own children naked is shameful. Oh, little faith, learn better manners, <laughs> says Spurgeon. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all else shall be added to you." Jesus' good news is simple. You don't have to hold on to the things of this world with a death grip. Jesus let go of everything heaven itself held and was happy with a simple trust in God. The original of the text is not easy to explain, for the word translated doubtful or anxious is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It appears to have something to do with meteors, so that the passage might be rendered, neither be ye of meteoric mind. <laughs> Jesus contrasted the life of those who do not know God and are separated from him with those who do know God and receive his loving care. Those who know God should seek after other things. You say again that you cannot help being anxious. Then, my dear friend, I must very solemnly ask you, what is the difference between you and the man of the world? Hmm, that's Spurgeon. But seek first the kingdom of God. This must be the rule of our life when ordering our priorities. Yet it is wrong to think that this is just another priority to fit onto our list of priorities and to put at the top. Instead, in everything we do, we seek first the kingdom of God. For example, we rarely have to choose between honoring God and loving our wives or being good workers. We honor God and we seek the kingdom of God by being good husbands and good workers. We should also remember this statement in its immediate context. Jesus reminds us that our physical well-being is not a worthy object to devote our lives unto. 
If you think it is worthy that your God is mammon, then your life is cursed with worry, and you live life too much like an animal lives, concerned mostly with physical needs. Jesus didn't just tell them to stop worrying. He told them to replace worry with a concern for the kingdom of God. A habit or a passion can only be given up for a greater habit or passion. And all these things shall be added to you. If you put God's kingdom first and do not think that your physical well-being is a worthy object to live your life for it, you then may enjoy all these things. He promises heavenly treasure, rest and divine provision, and fulfillment of God's highest purpose for man, fellowship with him, and being in his kingdom. This choice, to seek first the kingdom of God, is the fundamental choice everyone makes when they first repent and are converted. Yet every day after that, our Christian life will either reinforce that decision or deny it. All right, let's finish off the last few things that were included in this chapter. So um, Jesus ends this sort of talking about, you know, don't worry, um, don't covet. He's he's giving you these kind of tools for what a life uh, with the Lord might look like and what it won't look like. And he's kind of summing it up by saying, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Right? He says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This was true in a personal sense for the disciples because they enjoyed the presence of King Jesus and the benefits of his reign among them. It was also true in another sense. Jesus would ascend to heaven and, in a sense, leave the kingdom in the hands of these disciples. Such a great calling was also a promise of great blessings, protection, and provision. Jesus gave them confidence when he said, Your Father, instead of saying, My Father. Mm. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Ooh, it's so good. Sell what you have and give alms, Jesus said. The command to give away what we have is a test of discipleship, and it is also a tool to train us as disciples. It points to giving as an antidote or cure to covetousness. Ooh, so good. If you find that you're struggling with covetousness, make yourself give things away. (laughs) Readiness to respond to the call of renunciation is a sign of genuine conversion, a sign of undivided loyalty to Jesus, a sign of unwavering faith in him. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The correlation between where your heart is and the location of your treasure isn't a suggestion. It is a simple fact. If you regard your material possessions as your treasure, then your heart is set here on this earth. If a person's primary interests are earthbound, that is where his or her commitment will be. We should not forget that this teaching about riches and greed came from the man who interrupted Jesus' sermon with the request to settle a dispute between he and his brother. To this man and to all, Jesus warned about the location of his treasure and his heart. Then Jesus uh, switched directions and he gave us another parable. And he talks about... um, Let your waist be girded and your lamps be burning, and that you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, and that when he comes and knocks, that they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have him sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are the servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and all allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If the followers of Jesus are to, are to not be greedy or worried, they are to put their focus on the return of Jesus. This is something worth putting our lives into. These words of the Savior are closely linked up with the previous warnings not to be worldly-minded, but to be heavenly-minded. The idea behind this phrase of let your waist be girded and your lamps burning It's well expressed in the NIV translation. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. We are also reminded that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path from Psalm 119. One may have an inner willingness to serve God, as in your waist is girded, but not have the illumination needed to serve him well, which would be the light of his word burning brightly. The ready servants will be served by their master and blessed. There is rich reward in living a life ready and expectant for Jesus to return. 
Those servants who are alert to their master's return will be blessed. So blessed are they, in fact, that the Lord will reverse the roles and serve them by girding up his loins and seating them at the table and serving them. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, Jesus said. We all know the embarrassment of being called on when unprepared. Jesus told everyone to be prepared for his coming, which is the most important thing anyone could ever be ready for. A thief never announces his coming. He comes at a time when you would not expect him. The way to be on guard against a thief is to live in constant readiness, and the way to be ready for Jesus' return is to live in constant readiness. And then Peter says... Uh, Lord, do you speak this parable to us only or to all the people? And then the Lord went into another uh, parable and he said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward who's his ma- whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his to his shall be beaten with many stripes but he who did not know yet committed things deserving of strikes shall be beaten with a few for everyone to whom much is given much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him they will ask the more so first it says peter's asking him that parable that you just said about the servants who were ready for them and the master comes and decides to serve them because they were so diligent. Is that for us? Is that for this multitude of people here? Jesus answered Peter uh, saying that he spoke to everyone, that all should be like a faithful and wise steward. In a sense, Jesus said, I speak this parable to all who will live their life in readiness, even as a faithful steward. So he, he answered Peter's question with another parable, but apparently... Really, what he was saying is, no, this this is for everyone. Just be the faithful and wise steward. All who are servants of Jesus must be ready for his return. But those who are ministers among his servants must all the more be ready. Ignorance of the divine shall not wholly excuse the sinner. He shall be beaten, but his stripes shall be few. His damnation shall be gentle compared with the ministers. That knows his master's will, but does not teach it. Teaches it to others, but does it not himself. God looks upon wicked, loose, and scandalous and mischievous ministers as the greatest transgressors, and he will deal with them as such. But if the servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, a poor steward lives with the expectation of his master's return, lives without the expectation of his master's return, and it shows in several areas of his life. He mistreats the master's other servants. He is excessively given to the pleasures of this world. He is given to intoxication. Jesus here clearly connects the readiness for his return to a love, to a life of love, spiritual focus, and self-control. Likewise, the heart that says, my master is delaying his coming, is connected to the kind of low and fruitless life. Some get weary of waiting for his return or cynical about the return of Jesus because it hasn't happened yet. This is the exact attitude Jesus warned against here. If, in the perception of some, Jesus is delaying his coming, it is to, res- it is to rescue more people from the judgment to come upon the world in the very last days. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him. Ready or not, one day the master will come. When he comes, he will punish those who were not ready and denied his coming and will reward the ready. And at that, and that servant who did know his master's will, but did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. When the master comes, he will let the punishment match the offense. Those who knew how to be ready and yet were not will be punished worse than those who did not know and were not ready. Then Jesus went on to say, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I, ha- I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From, from now on, five and one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. So here, uh, one might regard this fire in a few possible ways that Jesus is saying when he said, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. 
It may be that the fire Jesus spoke of was judgment to come upon the Jewish people in the following decades. In Jewish thought, fire is almost always the symbol of judgment. So then, Jesus regarding the coming of his kingdom as a time of judgment. It may be that the fire Jesus spoke of is the power of the Holy Spirit that could only come after he had accomplished his work on the cross. When he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. It may be that the fire Jesus spoke of is the spread of the good news and the coming expansion of the work of his kingdom across the globe, which could not happen until he had accomplished his work on the cross. The fact that Jesus spoke of his suffering as a, baptize, as a baptism is meaningful. He wasn't sprinkled with suffering. He was immersed in agony. In the same way, we are to be baptized into Jesus Christ and baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed and overflowing. He says, how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Jesus was distressed until his work on the cross was accomplished because he knew all the good that would come from it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That was from Hebrews 12 too. He says, father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and so forth. This may be the price one must pay for being a faithful steward. When you follow Jesus faithfully, there may very well be division for his sake. His coming would inevitably mean division. In point of fact, it did. That was one of the great reasons why the Romans hated Christianity. Christianity It tore families in two. Then he said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. When you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather. Hypocrites, you learn to discern the face of the sky and of the time, but how is it you, you do not discern this time? Jesus rebuked the people of his day because they did not have the ability to discern this time. They should have understood more about the prophecies regarding the first coming of Jesus and appreciate the obvious signs confirming Jesus as the promised Messiah. But Jesus' listeners knew that when clouds formed in the west over the Mediterranean Sea, rain was on the way. They knew that when the warm wind blew from the Arabian desert, a heat wave was coming. Jesus spoke this to the multitudes, not only to his disciples. He wanted everyone to discern this time and be ready for his return. In our present times, there are many reasons to believe that Jesus is coming soon, adding to our sense of urgency as we hoped to discern this time. Then he says, yes and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him. This was a bit of an abrupt way to end this chapter. I'm curious about why the chapter was broken up with this particular story. Um, but he's saying, yeah, um, if you get into a bit of a legal issue with someone, make every effort to, with this adversary of yours to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I shall tell you, you will not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. Jesus asked his listeners to think through this for themselves. Anyone who can judge what is right can see the importance and good of getting right with God before we come before him as a judge. If one waits until they stand before his throne of judgment, the time will be too late. In the illustration here, the parable that Jesus is using, it made sense to settle before appearing before the judge. By analogy, we can say that in light of the work of Jesus at the cross, God offers a settlement out of court before judgment with God by putting our trust, our trusting love in who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. Jesus reminded them and us of the great penalty of not settling with God before the day of judgment. All of this presses upon us the urgency to get right with God now and to live in readiness and anticipation of the return of Jesus. Jesus here alluded to the idea that there is a price to be paid in hell when he says, you will, be, you will not escape there till you have paid the very last cent. This helps to explain the fearful yet biblical truth that hell is eternal because payment for sin is required and imperfect humanity can't make a perfect payment required by a perfect God. The coin Jesus refers to here was the lepton. A lepton means the thin one. It was the smallest coin. The punishment of hell is eternal just as life is eternal in heaven. The torment of hell is forever and the fires of hell are not quenched burning forever. The unjust have their own resurrection, presumably with bodies suited to endure the punishment of hell, according to John chapter 5 and Acts chapter 24. So that's it. That is the chapter. Those, those three parables, the one that we just looked at and the two about the servants, 
I don't know why, but when I was reading that earlier, I was just so unsure of what he was saying. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know. My brain was just slow today, but so I really appreciate that commentary actually making it sound much more simple than it read to me on the page. Um, pretty straightforward, you know, the difference between people who are actively living their lives um, in ways that bring honor to God and anticipation of his return and the people who who don't and the different ways he deals with them. So it's it's pretty straightforward. It's a bit scary. It's a bit scary to consider yourself somebody who's not ready and what that might look like, what punishment that might mean. But I hope that that isn't any of us. I would, I guess, assume not. <laughs> but yeah, interesting chapter. I feel like he covers so many different topics. It doesn't flow as well as like, I feel like the commentator makes it seem like it does. Like, oh, well, he clearly went from here to this thought and then that thought led him to this thing and... And I'm just like, I don't know, it felt a bit clunky to me to believe that it was all sort of interwoven in that moment. Um, but it it was, it's just a really like heavy chapter with like, he's moving all over the page. And it, I was finding it hard to uh, focus in on. So thank God for commentaries. Thank God for sort of weaving it all together and painting it into a tapestry that we can, I hope, better understand. Well, we'll be diving into Luke 13 tomorrow, so let's see what we can extract from this uh, continued journey deeper and deeper into the light and the the life and the wisdom of Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. I know it's a long one, but you know what? I said it before. I've made my peace with it. I've made my peace with it. So let's keep going. Um, thank you for listening, and I will be back with you tomorrow for another episode. Thank you, and bye-bye.